Now, this whole extended section in Mark's gospel is all about what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, You would have picked that up as we were going through the passage. But also, um, last week in our passage, we had a Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And that really informs the whole of this section. Now, the idea of following people has always been significant. Every culture has people who are put in front of us that we want to follow. They're often called the heroes. We talk of hero narratives. And in Jesus' day, it was no different. Um, There were lots of heroes. The heroes of the ancient world were strong and majestic and glorious, and they defeated the armies and the monsters who were kind of out there. Today, our hero narratives are a little bit different. Um, Our heroes are much more about ourselves and about the internal battles we face. Uh, The internal battles that we face within ourselves, it's about self-fulfillment, it's about self-actualization, it's about overcoming your inner demons. Notice the language. That's the hero. The hero is the one who looks inside themselves and is true to themselves and overcomes the barriers they face inside themselves. And, um, you know, in that context, you hear it particularly in a lot of the Disney films that we have at the moment. Listen to the great philosopher of our generation, Elsa from Frozen. And she sings this. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. So she's a hero because she's overcoming all the barriers she faces internally. She's overcoming her inner demons. She's the hero. And believe me, parents, I'm sure you know this, but if you're not a parent, you should know this. These are the heroes that our children are wanting to follow. Now, to follow Jesus back then was hugely countercultural in the light of heroes who are strong and majestic. A call to take up your cross was very, very tough. But it's no less biting today when we have the call to look with inside yourself. Jesus says, no, don't look with inside yourself. Look out, deny yourself and follow me. Again, very countercultural today. We're going to think about this passage and try and work it through in two big sections as we look at it. The first um, section looks at true greatness is greatness in humility, and then the second one, true faith is humble faith. And then we're going to look at the end um, of two sections that kind of come in this passage that look at how about how the cross and the future make it worthwhile, make taking up your cross and denying yourself all worthwhile. Let's look first of all at true greatness is greatness in humility. And um, let me try and get our bearings a little bit on how the passage works. So this is definitely all one section um, that we've had read, even though it was quite lengthy, because the section starts at 9.30 with the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And then did you notice at 10.31, you get this phrase, Jesus teaching, saying, many who are first will be last and the last first. So the theme of humility and putting others first is big throughout the whole section as we follow Jesus. And the way that the passage is structured is around two sandwiches. This is a literary kind of technique that Mark likes using. It works really well as things are read out. It provokes you to think. And the meat in both of the sandwiches are these two instances where Jesus takes children and uses them as a kind of visual illustration of what it means to follow him. He does it twice. The first bit in the second part of chapter 9, and then the second time he does it in the first part of chapter 10. And sandwiched either side of that are bits all about what it looks like to follow Jesus kind of as a child. So in um, the first bit in chapter 9, we get it all about humility. And he who would be greatest is greatness in humility. And the example is shown in the life of the children. And then the second part from chapter 10 onwards, we get again, you'll see at verse 13, the little children and Jesus. And either side, we get teaching on humble faith. 
So that's how we're going to take our passage. We're going to look first of all at the true greatness is greatness in humility. Now, it's a bit strange, isn't it, when you come to the beginning of it and you see the disciples arguing on the road about who is the greatest. And you, like me, probably get one of those moments when that's read out and you just think, who were these guys? I mean, who does that? I don't imagine that you've had an argument in your office or in your neighborhood with someone about who's greater between the two of you. I mean, it does sound like something that only we get on at real Donald Trump's Twitter page, isn't it? I mean, you know, we just don't do that. But you have to realize that back then, humility was not considered a virtue, uh, reputation, um, being recognized by other people, being honored by other people. That was what society was all about. Humility didn't become a virtue until after Christianity really gripped the Western world until a couple of centuries later. Um, listen to this, for example, from the opening of a book by the famed historian Josephus. And this was quite common for how people would open their books. This is what he wrote. My family is not an ignoble one, tracing its descent far back to priestly ancestors. Brought up with Matthias, my own brother by both parents, I made great progress in my education, gaining a reputation for an excellent memory and understanding. While still a mere boy, about 14 years old, I won universal applause for my love of literature, insomuch that the chief priests and the leading men of the city used constantly to come to me for precise information on some particular in our ordinances. I mean, do you hear the boastfulness of it all? And you're thinking, who, who writes like that? Who speaks like that? They did back then. The disciples' debate about who was greatest was commonplace. Philosophers debated who was the greatest. They debated who the greatest leaders were because it was about honor and recognition. And so in that context, Jesus teaches something very countercultural. Look down at chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He completely subverts what they would think at the time. He says, you want recognition by God, the one who really matters? It's about putting yourself last and about putting other people first. Can you imagine how challenging that would be in an honor-shame society where if you didn't get recognition, you didn't get honor, and that affected your family? He says, you want to be first, you've got to be last. And if you try and push yourself first, you will end up being last. He completely reverses the whole thing. He says, this is the way of the kingdom of God. And of course, he's going to model that because he's just taught above. Has need that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. He is the humble Messiah, the greatest of all, but he shows his greatness in humility, and he says to them then and to each one of us, you want to be great? Then be great in humility. Now, this still bites for us today, but in a slightly different way. Few of us, I imagine, will be so narcissistic as to overtly push ourselves forward nowadays. I mean, we're better than that, aren't we? Well, at least we're more subtle than that. I mean, we still do it in conversation. We've just got well-worn techniques of making it look like we're not doing it. The false modesty ploy, the asking a question, and then they have to ask you, and you get to drop in that bit of detail that you really wanted to tell them, but you just didn't lead with that because that would be a bit egotistical. I'm judging by the smirks, you all do that, right? So we do it, we just do it subtly because humility is a virtue now, but we want to push ourselves forward. But the real bite, I think, for this text is on the self-fulfillment narrative. Everything in culture today is saying, you do you. You do you. Love yourself. If you don't love yourself, you can't even love other people properly, right? Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Fulfill yourself. Make it all about you. 
Our identity is predicated on our view of ourselves and looking inside ourselves. Our morality is all about ourself. You don't get to tell me what's right and wrong. If I've looked within myself and I've really found it, then, then it's true for me. And therefore, you have to accept that. Everything in our culture is now orientated this way. And you know what Jesus says to that? No, you'll become curved in on yourself. You'll become proud. You'll become distorted. You want life? Deny yourself. You want to be first? Come last and push others first. Joy, he says, paradoxically, is found by putting others before yourself. That's where it's found. And I'm going to show you what that's all about by dying on a cross. I'll completely change the game. I wonder, do we really believe that today? Because it's interesting, isn't it, that there's a Christian equivalent to it as well. We make the Christian community, the church, about self. Oh, it's really important to find a church that just fits you, as though the church were playing the preferences game that social media plays when they try to gear everything around you. Our vision here at Inspire is unashamedly not that you come and receive some inspiration, though we hope that by God's grace you will receive that, but that you come and you want to inspire London. Notice it's focused on the city, on the community, in the nicest possible way, not on you. Because we're here to serve one another, not to be fulfilled in ourselves. I wonder, is that your view of the Christian life? And of course, it radically changes our view of others, doesn't it? As we get into the second half of the passage, you see from verse 38 and ongoing, how it changes your view of others. Look at verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. We told him to stop driving out demons? Why would you do that? Because he was not one of us. Here's what happens. If you think life is all about you, then community is all about you. You define community by yourself, not one of us. Notice what Jesus says. Do not stop him, unsurprisingly, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name. Here's the standard. The standard for a community is not whether they are one of us. The standard is, are they one of Jesus's? That's Jesus' only concern, and that should be only our concern as well. As we go out into our community, are they one of his? Can I tell them about him? Can I model his love to them? As we come in, are they one of his? Can I help them to love him better? It's other person-centered, it's Jesus-centered. And notice how exclusive communities become when you start to define it by one of us. Did you know London's one of the most segregated cities on earth? People walking around in their preference communities. I mean, that's not really a community, let's call them preference groups saying, I need to find people like me who like the same things like me because that's what social media tells me is me. Friends, that's not community, at least not the way Jesus sees it. It's fine to hang out with people you get on with, of course, but Jesus came to stretch for the other and he calls us, if we follow him, to stretch for the other. We are unashamedly diverse in this room. We always will be as long as we've got breath because we believe that's what Jesus calls us to. True greatness is greatness in humility. That changes how you view yourself and it changes how you view others and community. Let's look secondly at true faith is humble faith. True faith is humble faith. We're looking from chapter 10 and onwards. And don't worry, we're going to come back to the hard bit of teaching. I'm not ducked at the end of chapter 9. We'll come back to that. Chapter 10, verse 15, really gives us the meat at the heart of the sandwich in the second half. Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, you're thinking that's very cute, and that's lovely, and isn't Jesus warm? And he is. But back then, children were not considered in that same way. 
it might surprise you to know I spend quite a bit of time in Africa, and um, when I get, went to uh, Uganda a few years back, I was astonished to find out that in the rural communities, parents would not talk to their children until they're about 15 or 16. Just wouldn't talk to them, because they were not deemed yet to be fully-fledged members of the community that could really stand up to a normal conversation. It's, it's a bit close to that. Children, they can't offer anything. And so when, when the disciples stop the children coming to Jesus, it's saying, don't waste your time with those who aren't important. Instead, focus on the important. And so when Jesus says you've got to receive the kingdom of God like a child, the whole point is children have nothing, right? We know that. They receive everything as free gifts. And yet, of course, children are remarkably bold with that, aren't they? They don't let their humility get in the way of bold asking. Daddy, can you put my trousers on? Mummy, can you take my shoes? Nana, can I have a fire engine for Christmas? No, a real one, Nana. No, you can't. You can have a toy. That's the best you get. You know, I mean, they, they're just bold in asking for things, aren't they? And so Jesus says, this is a model of faith. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I come with nothing. You're the creator. I'm the creature. But I come boldly, even though I come in humility. True faith is a humble faith. And here, what Mark does is he sandwiches either side of this teaching two bits that are um, strangely all about the heart and the reasons why our hearts stop us being humble. So the first bit from chapter 10 that's heading of divorce looks a little bit like an incidental, like a side road that Jesus is pulling into. But I want to suggest to you, and do grapple with this and see what you think, that it's not a side, it's not a kind of lay-by, it's not Jesus changing the subject, it's Jesus being on subject. Because the context of the debate the Pharisees are raising about divorce is incidental to the way they raise it. Look at verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Do you see? In contrast to humble faith, the Pharisees are elevating themselves to test Jesus. And verse 5, Jesus says, it is because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. Now, he's explaining the reason for a provision for divorce, but notice the focus is because your hearts were hard, Pharisees. He's pointing the finger back to them. He's turning the tables on them. He's saying, you're coming to me like this, testing me and proud because your hearts are hard and you will never get the kingdom of God if you try and approach me that way. If you are hard-hearted, humble faith will always be impossible for you because you're too full of yourself. You can't possibly humble yourself and receive things like a child. And incidentally, of course, the things that Jesus here teaches about marriage are significant. Notice that Jesus reaffirms Genesis as divinely authoritative for all times and all places. Marriage should be between a man and a woman. He does affirm that. He also affirms the sanctity of marriage and the fact that divorce is always a, an option of last resorts when there's no other way out of it. And if that raises questions for you, please do come and grab me or grab Mark afterwards. We'd love to chat with you about that. And then he goes on, and we have this rather strange incident. Initially, it seems strange, of the incident with the rich young ruler. And here again, Mark is wanting us to see how it's all about the heart. Because the rich young ruler, he's not so much hard-hearted as his heart is attached to the wrong things. And that is the reason that he can't bring himself to follow Jesus and to do what Jesus says. So, look, he's, first of all, his heart is attached to his moral or religious performance. Look at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me the list of commandments that I can do because I'm good at doing things. I'm really good. Have you heard? 
Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's attached to his moral performance, his religiosity, his zeal, and his goodness. He's also attached to his wealth. Look at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Unless we think that Jesus is saying something totally unreasonable, don't forget that earlier on in the Mark's Gospel, this is exactly what the disciples have already done. Come follow me, he said. And what do they do? At once they left their nets, left their boats, left their family, and followed him. It's not that following him in this way, it's not that giving those things up suddenly earns you the kingdom of God. It's that those things could hinder you from following Jesus with humble faith. And so Jesus says to this rich young ruler, your moral performance, your wealth, you're too attached to them. They're too important to you. If you really want to have eternal life, give them up and follow me, just like my disciples have done. Become a disciple of mine. Then you'll know the kingdom of God. Then you'll have humble faith. You're not earning it. It's a free gift. But give those things up that your heart's attached to. And he doesn't do it. Do you see the significance here? Humble faith is the antithesis of a hard heart or a heart that is attached to good things like being good or wealth or relationships or career or respect or reputation or popularity or beauty. All good things. But Jesus says, if they are preventing you from being wholehearted and humble in your commitment to him, they're preventing you from getting in the kingdom of God. Give them up. Give them up. They're not worth it. And this is where, as we come to the bits that we've initially escaped over, it's really important for us to realize that Jesus is going to look at the future and show us how in the future these things don't pay out either. Let me, though, first of all, just give you an example. I remember a number of years ago um, chatting with a young woman. She was attractive. Uh, Rebecca and I were married at the time, just so I get this on the table. She was attractive, and Rebecca and I were counseling her because she was really battling with singleness. And as we spoke to her, she was very upset about being single. She couldn't work out why she was single. She'd had a number of boyfriends. None of it had worked out. And it was very clear as we talked to her that her heart was too attached to the prospect of getting married, which is a good thing, but it had become her idol, her everything. And we talked to her about this, and we said, look, you know, you've got to trust Jesus with it. We know that's easy for us to say as a married couple, but let us pray for you, let us support you, let us encourage you to not let your heart get too attached. And with much tears, she really prayed that through with us over a number of weeks and months. And I can say happily, now today, she's uh, walking with the Lord, She's tender-hearted. She's still beautiful. She's greatly used by God. I'm not going to tell you whether she's single or married. That's what you all want to know. You can ask me afterwards. <laughs> a few months later, after we'd chatted with her, um, another young woman, you know, kind of came, was talking to Rebecca, and she was singing, similarly battling with singleness. And um, she was telling us about how she really wanted to get married. And as we talked to her about, you know, giving it up for Jesus and, you know, trusting him with the future and not knowing whether she would be married or not, she just said, I can't bear it. It's not fair. God has to get me married. I mean, I'm following him, all these things I'm doing for him. And her heart became harder and harder as we talked with her. We urged her to pray for it, but she didn't want to. She became more and more brittle over the months ahead, and tragically, she's not even following the Lord today. The same problem dealt with in two very different ways. This is the problem, the problem of the human heart. We are all by nature attached to certain things, and Jesus will always say, you either have me as your all or you don't have me at all. 
and our hearts are tugged and attached to things. And sometimes he's gracious enough even to prize off a few of our fingers to make our hearts release from things we're too attached to. Because humble faith means giving it all up for him. And the better something is, the more likely you're to say, this is my all and everything. And he says, friend, give that up. Even as I'm speaking, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is convincing you right now of some things in your life that are good, you know they're good, they're good gifts. But you're like this with them, aren't you? You're holding on too tight. He says, you've got to give it up. It's either me or that. There can only be one number one in your life. I give you all good gifts. Receive them as gifts, but don't become too attached to them. You say, well, how can I do that? Lastly, as we close, well, look at the cross and look at the future. How do you avoid the danger of your heart becoming hard or your heart becoming too attached to things? Well, in a famous sermon that I often quote or talk about, um, a man called Thomas Chalmers, who was a Puritan, talked about how our hearts will always attach to the thing that is most attractive to us. And so the real key of pastoring your heart and not becoming too attached to things that are not Jesus is to see that they, in comparison to Jesus, are nowhere near as attractive and as beautiful as he is. So see his surpassing beauty and see the danger of where they will lead you. And I think this is what is going on in the passage. I mean, first of all, think about Jesus and think of what he's done for you. Has he not died on a cross for you? Do any of the things your heart is attached to sacrifice themselves for you like that? Your career says to you, you sacrifice yourself for your career. Money says to you, you work hard, you give your life to get money. It calls you to sacrifice. Jesus comes and doesn't call you to sacrifice. He comes and says, I will be the sacrifice for you. Which is more attractive? You know the answer. And look at where your idols will lead you. That's what chapter 9, I think, is about. It's worth saying I've grappled with this over the week, and I'm not entirely convinced what it's about, and most of the commentators don't seem to know either, but... I'm wondering if the warnings about stumbling is about the things that can stumble us from following Jesus, particularly the things that our hearts are attached to. And notice the warning, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Now, this is, of course, a metaphor. Jesus is not saying hell is literally a place of burning, but if it's a metaphor, I don't think that makes us any more comforting. Fire is a picture of disintegration. He's saying, if you follow your idols, they will take you to the eternity beyond death where you're left with nothing but God giving you over in anger and judgment to your idols. And all you get then is the endless despair of your idols not satisfying. It's like constantly for eternity drinking from a fountain of salt water that leaves you always wanting more, never satisfied. He says, that's hell, that's fire. It's like the isolation of darkness, being cut off from God and having nothing but your regrets and knowing there will never be a time when you can put them right. He says, that's hell. What are you doing? Don't go that way. Take radical measures. Come to me. You say, well, that seems steep and harsh, but look at the difference. Look at the reward of heaven at the end of chapter 10. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this age, in this age, <laughs> and in the life to come. God is no man's debt. You say, Pete, you don't know what I'm being called to give up. I might not, but God does. And he promises you, he says, you will get it back in this age and in the life to come. To someone who's grappling with singleness, Jesus says, in this age, you get the, the church family, a family of unconditional love. At least, friends, that's what we should be. 
And in the life to come, you get the heavenly marriage with Christ and his church that will make any marriage, no matter how spectacular, how wonderful, how glorious, I will just look like a cheap imitation. He says, that's what you get. You say, well, I'm going to give up my wealth and I'm going to give sacrificially, but there's a real cost to that. He says, you have no idea of the glory that awaits you in the new creation. When all material prosperity this side just looks like lead echoes in comparison to that golden future. He says, give it up. It's always worth it. Give it up because God is no man's debtor. True greatness is greatness in humility. True faith is humble faith, so follow me. Let me end by reading the last stanza of a poem called The Leaden Echo and the Golden Echo by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And it's about the future and about the way that if we trust Christ, the future is always worth it. Give beauty back, beauty, 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 back to God, beauty's self and beauty's giver. See, not a hair is, not an eyelash, not the least lash, lost every hair is, hair of the head, numbered. Nay, what we had light-handed left in surely the mere mold would have waked and have waxed and have warped with the wind that while we slept this side, that side, hurling a heavy-headed hundredfold, what while we, we slumbered, are then weary, then why? When the thing we freely forfeit is kept with a fonder care, fonder a care kept than we would have kept it, <laughs> kept far with fonder a care, and we would have lost it, finer, fonder a care kept, where kept? Do but tell us where kept. Where? Yonder. What high is that? We follow. Now we follow yonder. Yes, yonder. Yonder, yonder there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know the cost of what you call us to as we follow you, but you equally know that in the light of eternity and all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, it is no cost at all. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Help us to hear that call, that call to put others first, that call to humble faith, and help us to see that in the light of the cross and eternity, in the light of a Savior who's given everything for us, it is a no-brainer. And so give us the strength in your spirit to follow you, we pray, for your namesake. Amen.